Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota of Brookhaven has been voted best new car dealership in Southwest Mississippi four years in a row. Come see the difference. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota of Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this. Friday, y'all. Yes, indeed it is. So, yesterday, after the program, I headed down there to the Capitol for the... Senate hearing for my lottery reappointment. I've been a member of the board, was asked to serve in that capacity by Governor Phil Bryant just after the Alice G. Clark Lottery Act was made into law. That was in August of 2018. And, uh, and so, of course, went through the hearing and approval process back then, and the uh, the terms of lottery board members, somewhat unique in that they are staggered. There are five members, and the terms of the members are five, four, three, two, one years, initially, okay? Reappointment is for five years. So the governor... Uh, assigned uh, Governor Phil Bryant the four-year a term to me, to my seat. And so it ended, and then Governor Tate Reeves asked me to continue to serve in that capacity. But you still have to go through the the hearing process oh, yeah. uh, for the state Senate. I did that yesterday. And this is the Senate Finance Committee for this particular uh, position, and I don't know how many members are on that, uh, but it's uh, in this advice and consent role that then goes to the full Senate. I, I'm going to estimate twenty, maybe more than twenty. But <laughs> I only two senators asked me questions. Now I don't know if I've ever shared the experience I had the first cycle back in nineteen. But I was at the podium there, so that when they meet, if you've been to the Capitol, folks, the what used to be the old Supreme Court was actually located inside the Capitol on the second floor there. Of course, it has its own building now, the Carroll Garden Justice Building, directly to the north across the street there from the state Capitol. But when there are 
let's say, large meetings of members of the legislature, they typically will convene in that room. And it's still set up uh, like uh, a court used to be with the sort of gallery area and the, you know, kind of knee-high fence wall, whatever you want to call it there. Yeah, it's like having a big class in an auditorium. That's right. And then there's a podium to the side, and there's several tables set up in the middle, and then, of course, the chair of the Finance Committee, which is Senator Josh Harkins and the other, I guess, officers on that committee. But I only got questions this time from two senators. Last time, I was there for about an hour and 30 minutes. The other four board members were in and out within five minutes. Uh, (laughs) And this all stemmed from a series of questions from Democrat members that were concerned about the fact that uh, about 10 months prior to that hearing, I hosted a fundraiser for then-Senator Michael Watson um, at my house, who was running for Secretary of State, and which is, as far as I know, is fully legal. What we did there was totally in conformance with the law, but there was some suggestions that I had this fundraiser of March of of uh, whenever it was, 18, I guess, so that I could, I guess, maybe persuade votes on the state Senate to, <laughs> um, to appoint me and approve me to be on the lottery before the lottery was passed into law. Uh, <laughs> so I got some questions on that, which is fine. You know, that's that's what it's there for. But it, it got a little contentious. Senator Hob Bryan, who's not a big fan of the lottery, I felt like decided to kind of make me the scapegoat for his grievance about that, which, which is perfectly fine. And he again asked me questions yesterday. Now, it's four years of history. The lottery launched in in November of 19, so we're approaching four years. We've had two full years of operations, one fractional year, and we're, of course, at the um, three-quarters point in this year, this fiscal year. Fiscal year ends June 30th, and the Lottery Corporation observes the same fiscal year as the state of Mississippi, which is June 30th. So (laughs) Senator Hobb, uh, Brian, asked me a couple of questions, and then Senator Jeremy England, who's been on the program a couple of times, or more than a couple of times, he from Jackson County, he, he was recognized by the chair to ask a question. And, folks, uh, if you're not familiar with the process, any appointments in state government require completion of essentially an application, if you will, that is published by and reviewed by the peer committee, P-E-E-R. I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but they're kind of a watchdog, if you will, in government. And you have to complete that document, send it in, and it's and it's requires you to provide information about yourself. What's Performance evaluation and expenditure review. Okay, so they handle that for appointments, and 
you have to include, of course, your work history, your your current occupation, if you have one, and then your prior occupations, including any businesses which you had uh, any ownership in that, and that you worked for. So I did. And I, besides my, my main technology company, had four other sort of related side companies as well. But I, I listed Rhino on my as my current occupation the way we describe this occupation at this company, which is on air talent. You're familiar with that. So that's how we describe it. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. So Senator England says, um, Mr. Garrett, he's got the peer form and he's kind of flipping through it like he's reading it. Um, it says here that your current occupation is on air talent. Well that's correct, Senator. Yes, sir. He said how do you feel about REO Speedwagon not being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> How awesome was that? <laughs> and the other senators were like, what's he talking about? And I said... Now you're officially on record. <laughs> That's right. I said, I believe they need to be inducted into the Hall of Fame immediately. <laughs> and obviously he was trying to... Throw a little softball out there while Senator Bryan... Lighten the mood a bit. <laughs> exactly. But I appreciate it. So I wanted to tell that story. I'm not sure that's ever been asked in <laughs> an appointment confirmation hearing. Um, I mean, you have to have a little legislative levity every once in a while. Well, of course. And Senator England is pretty good at that. If you've ever watched any of his... Speeches in the well there. He's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, is there a problem with that? Not to me. I think it's good. I think, I think a little levity is good for the soul, is it not? And especially in a stressful situation and contentious situations. I mean, if I were waiting out in the hallway for my turn to get over with and it had taken 30 minutes for you to go through a, a litany of questions about REO Speedwagon, yeah, I could see a problem with it. But, <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah, just a, a one-off. I don't see a problem with yeah, it. Yeah, that didn't happen. It was just as I described it, and that was the end of it. But, uh, you know, I appreciate Senator Bryan's uh, questions. Uh, I really do. And, I, again, I don't know that any other uh, appointment has been through quite the grilling session, not this time, but four years ago. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. Senator Barbara Blackman as well expressed some concerns about the fundraiser that I had for Michael Watson. Um, and Senator Bryan also asked if members of the board received per diems, which they do in accordance with state law. It's forty bucks for the way. By the way, folks, anytime you're on official duty business for. Uh, the organization in that in that role in that capacity it's it's forty dollars and honestly it's not worth the paperwork so for quite some time i i didn't submit any um, any forms to receive the per diem and i think they finally said we really need you to take this and uh, and i did so no big deal whatsoever but we're in the Element Well Studios. Wanted to kind of lead us off with that. We got some poll numbers on Joe Biden. We got issues continuing in the banking industry. Caleb Sailors from Supertalk Mississippi News at 1120. Former U.S. Attorney Mike Hurst, 1205. Stay with us. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
introduced you to that one, did I not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like the dumbest movie of all time. It had no plot. But it was I have fun. a soft space in my heart for any of the, the genre of music where you just have the big, rich Russian bass come in for a line or two. <laughs> That's right. And, of course, if you're listening to that, in the old discotheque era, you're like shaking every time the bass is struck. Oh, gosh. Shout out to Senator England. How cool was that, though? Uh, that's, that's, that was awesome. So uh, the vote of the Finance Committee there was unanimous, uh, and so it now goes to the full Senate. You know what you can do now, right? What's that? You can get some of that really fancy parchment paper and print out the fact the the minutes from the meeting so that it's it's officially on the record <laughs> in the state of Mississippi your opinion on whether or not REO Speedwagon should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then like frame it and drop ship it to the hall. Let's see what they say. That's a good point. That's excellent. We're gonna have to do that. That's fantastic. And if they are, I'm going, by the way. <laughs> well, it took Journey a while, as you know, which was insane as well. The other one that's still hanging out there, I mentioned the other day, is Dan Fogelberg. Not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Those from my era, of course, remember. Uh, Dan, he, he was interesting in concert. He... Um, I mean, fantastic musician, right? What an artist he was. But, what, you know, concerts can get a little rowdy, even his sort of style of music, because it's a concert. That's what you do. And uh, he was known at his concerts to, like, shush the crowd. Shh, shh. <laughs> he didn't want that to sort of uh, make so much noise that it drowned it out in his musical performance. Shh, shh. <laughs> I mean, some performers would just go over to the amp and turn it up. That's right. Because they wouldn't quite fit the Fogelberg sound. I think that's right. You can only crank it so much before it completely changes the sound. (laughs) That's true. Speaking of which, later on in the program, we got uh, tickets to give away for Three Doors Down. We are in the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. So today, the markets, folks, are down. The Dow down now 230 it was down about a hundred and change before, right before the show started, and this is as a result of Deutsche Bank. So more troubles in the banking industry. Deutsche Bank is a German uh, financial institution that has a lot of business as well here in the United States. In fact, full disclosure, we had a relationship, my company, with Deutsche Bank because they did a lot of work in the technology industry. Their shares were down considerably. They've rebounded a bit, but their shares were down considerably this morning because there's concerns about their stability. And that was brought on by a a spike in what are called credit default swaps, CDSs. This is what really was the, uh, the catalyst for the banking crash in 08. This is just insurance against debt. 
credit default swap. Essentially means an insurer, uh, you, you pay premiums to an insurer to insure against default of debt on your balance sheet. And if that happens, then the insurance pays off whatever the face value is of the policy, but then they end up with the debt. That's why they call it a swap. And and so there was a precipitous rise in the price of their insurance, of their credit default swaps. And that got out. It's public information. And investors got nervous, so they pushed the stock down. But I think it's just another symptom of continued problems in the banking sector. We had Credit Suisse earlier in the week and uh, a rescue there by UBS. So this is weighing on markets. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is totally clueless. Not that he wasn't clueless. What else is new? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But more importantly, you seen his poll numbers? The poll was taken last week at the lowest level in his presidency. The poll was released late yesterday after the show. 38% approval. 61 disapprove. 38%. Wow. How many ostriches do they have to study to get 38% people to approve of this guy? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good point. I'd like to ask them, what exactly do you approve of? Are we going to get the old refrain, he's not Trump? We're going to get that? What's amazing is the White House press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, stands in front of the nation virtually daily and tells us how great everything is. It's because of this president. Everything's this president, this president. I don't know that's the typical vernacular for, for that role, just to always refer to him as the third person like that, this president. But really, this president's policies, they don't seem to be very favorable by the American people, not to the extent KJP tells us they are. But this is the lowest of his presidency. Am I crazy, or is, does it feel like She's getting a little tired of the position. Yeah. I think it's hard to go out there every day. And and it, it does feel like it's about that point in the, the tenure where you usually get a new one. It's true. I mean, there were there was a lot more turnover under Trump than usual, but it's rare nowadays to have one last an entire term. I think that's right. Uh it, it does feel like that it's uh, it looks more like drudgery to her to come out every day. And I don't know that it's accurate to say she comes out and makes excuses, but I think she's having to carry the water every day. Her boss doesn't do it very much. Yeah, it's been a minute since he took questions from anybody. Right. So he doesn't. And... You know, all he does is blast the MAGA Republicans. And what what did we report yesterday? Five alarm fire <laughs> with the Republican budget. I wonder if he's got a big shiny coin with five alarm fire on one side and malarkey <laughs> on the other. He just flips it to determine which one he's going to use. Five, five alarm fire. <laughs> um, so 
I I think that the situation in the banking industry, I mean, you're, you're going to get hung with that. Honestly, I believe if what occurred with the banking industry in, in 2008, and recall, that was, what, within 30, 45 days of the election, the general election. I don't know that he would, would have been a great president, but John McCain was winning, and he was going to win. Barack Obama overtook him when the banking failures sprouted up. That was all, of course, attributed to Republicans, the Bush administration, etc. And that's really what propelled him to victory, I believe. Now, I'm no big John McCain fan, necessarily, but I think he would have been better than Barack Obama. If you think about three main pieces of legislation we got, which Democrats don't seem to ever want to acknowledge that, you know, they're uh, they're sort of saint president, Barack Obama. They would tell you, oh, best president we ever had. There for eight years. But what rarely gets discussed is, well, what exactly did he do? Three major pieces of legislation. Because remember, he had the rare alignment of the stars, had supermajority in the Senate, also had control of the House. So he had the trifecta. He passed the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, so-called stimulus. It was petty cash at $897 billion compared to what we did for COVID. That was his first big thing. And then he spent... Honestly, the rest of that period leading up to the midterms, which you remember flipped the House, he spent the rest of that period, that first two years of his presidency, pushing through the Affordable Care Act. By the way, I think it was the day before yesterday when uh, the anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act, Joe Biden made... uh, an official statement on that, and there was lots of fanfare associated with it. In fact, Oxford uh, Mayor Robin Tannehill attended the ceremony celebrating the signing of the act. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. in the Element Well Studios. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Kevin in Monticello says she probably has a panic attack every time her phone rings. (laughs) Could be. Shaq, Bully, and Biloxi. Gerard, can you explain the ESG bill Biden vetoed? Yeah, I'll do my best with that, uh, Shaq Bully. So this legislation was brought about, 
passed on a bipartisan basis because the Department of Labor, once again, the bureaucratic deep state in this administration, was issuing regulations, has issued regulations, actually, that would uh, essentially allow money managers. Now, we're talking primarily about uh, pension plans, etc., where where money managers aren't really controlled by individual contributors into that plan. For example, if you're a state employee and you're enrolled in PERS, which is a requirement, you're contributing to it, you really don't direct the, the PERS organization uh, how to invest PERS funds. Those are invested and managed in an, on an aggregate basis. Uh, and so what the Lab- Department of Labor said is a, an, a money manager is allowed, is allowed to invest these funds in companies that have a strong, uh, strong initiatives in place on climate change and equity and other social causes, if you will. ESG, Environmental Social Governance, that's what the acronym stands for. It just It's non-financial factors being considered in investing. So what law says before labor issued this regulation is that money managers are required to maximize returns for their clients. That's called fiduciary responsibility. They serve as what are called fiduciaries. That's what that means. That's what that that refers to. <clears throat> so the labor says, well, they may not invest in such a way that produces maximum returns, but they're concerned about the planet and other social causes, social justice movements, and that's okay. We'll give them a pass. In other words, they're not breaching, violating their fiduciary responsibility, which says, no, you're supposed to invest in such a way that produces maximum returns, financial returns, achieves the greatest economic outcome for clients' money. That's okay. You get a pass. That's what labor did. So Republicans in the House say, well, that's crap. No. And they put a bill together that gets some Democrat votes, gets two in the Senate, therefore it passes, gets sent. And basically what that bill said is, no, labor can't do that. Money managers need to invest consistent with traditional fiduciary responsibility, not with any consideration or focus on companies that are so-called woke. That's why you hear a lot of the rhetoric from the Republicans saying Joe Biden is making Americans invest their companies, invest their money in companies that are woke, trying to achieve some political agenda. All that's actually true. And Biden vetoes this. So there was an attempt, you saw that, I'm sure, Rhino, yesterday to override the veto. The votes aren't there. Couldn't do it. 
two-thirds, right, I think, in both chambers yeah. to override a presidential veto. So that didn't get done. <clears throat> so the veto stands. So what this means for those those individuals that uh, have money managers that have decided to that, – that are managing these funds like pension plans and employee um, – what are called ERISA plans, where the employees don't have any say in the investment decisions, that these money managers that are contracted to do so are allowed to invest based on non-financial factors, non-financial considerations, as long as they're consistent with this environmental social justice bucket of causes, if you will. They get a pass. So you may not get maximum returns on your retirement savings, but you're saving the planet and you're helping BLM and you're assuring that these companies practice equity in their hiring and promotion practices. A bunch of horse hockey is what it is. And Biden actually went against the grain of at least two senators and, I don't know, a dozen or so in the House, as I recall, that peeled off and supported the legislation that would override. This is another situation, Rhino, where the Congress makes the dang laws, but this these rogue agencies, in this case labor, go out and just kind of implement their own little political agenda. This is what maddens Americans. This probably maddens me about the way government in Washington works more than anything. Because it renders us as voters somewhat impotent. That doesn't matter who we put up there, because they make the laws, and then that gets handed down to the agencies who are responsible for implementing them, and they just do whatever the hell they want. We already saw the Supreme Court strike down the EPA's action, when West Virginia went and sued them, took them to court and said, no, that's not what the law says here. You guys have exceeded your authority. Is that what it's going to take to stop ESG and investment? I think we may end up with some lawsuits. We certainly should. This is really going to test the left, right? And this is what I mean by that. A lot of this affects union pensions, big time, who are, of course, all in, all under the Democrat now their they're golden child, Joe Biden, who can't do a speech without lying about his union history, right? His union experience. That or what neighborhood he grew up in. <laughs> uh, so, but, okay, union members, what do you want here? You want to be woke or do you want the most money? See, it's that incumbency thing. Oh, I'm for Joe Biden as long as I'm getting these high wages and these egregious benefits. But now you're starting to dig into that. Hmm, maybe they start changing their attitude somewhat. This will challenge that, I believe. So that's what that's all about. Shaq Billy, I hope, I know that was probably a longer explanation than you wanted, but it's not a, not a simple matter. And, and this whole ESG acronym, really, I didn't. I never heard of it five years ago. It's all come about in the last few years, and it's 
It's all these companies when they're riding high and they're producing record profits and you got all this helicopter money coming out of the federal government that's that's uh, pushing them to new heights from a financial perspective, they all of a sudden become social justice warriors because they know that, hey, the money's going to be there, revenues are strong, profits are great, and then all of a sudden there's a bit of a drop-off and, oh, well, they start, I don't know, letting people go? All these big old social justice companies? I keep waiting for Senator Elizabeth Warren and the likes to come out and start blasting these big tech companies that have been laying off people. You can't lay them off. you got to keep employing them, paying them. Oh, you're losing money or you're struggling to achieve your profit goals? Well, it's for the good of society. Keep them employed. I really do wait for that to come. When they start forcing companies and denying companies the right forcing companies to hire people, denying them the right to release people when they need. It's uh, interesting times we live in uh, at a minimum. When we come back, I'm going to dig into this 13-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. How do you think that's been going? We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studios. Stay with us. The stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. On the all-hit request line, that's the great Kevin Cronin on vocals, Gary Richcraft, the late great Gary Richcraft on the electric guitar there. (laughs) Yeah, they got to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, dang it. Don't understand that. The Dow's recovered a bit, now only down 89 points. Buyers and sellers out there trying to second-guess off all this stuff. I wish we could get out of Fed-watching mode, honestly. It's like we just hang on every word Jerome Powell says and every action they take, and the governors, to try to invest 
We've got to get out of that and get back to fundamentals. It's uh, crazy. I think 11 rate hikes? I think 11 is the number that comes to mind since he started hiking. Even when he was hiking and saying it was transitory, this inflation. Um, I am concerned about the... I started thinking about this. I said this a couple of days ago that we may see, we are going to see, I believe, tightening of credit, and that will slow down the economy. Companies can't get capital. Here's my concern. Start laying off people. Here's what's different about being laid off today. You have all these safety net egregious programs and all this universal basic income. I saw a map the other day of the cities and municipalities that are considering or have some form of universal basic income, it was mind-blowing across the country. I mean, just dots everywhere. This thing is taking hold like wildfire. Well, the point is, it's really hard to fight inflation the way the Fed's trying to by raising interest rates with the goal of knocking people out of work when when we do it, we shower them with all this money that they go spend. That's what I call chasing the old tail, Jerome Powell. But yet, when he's asked about, do you need any help from a fiscal policy perspective, he wouldn't. Now, I did look it up. Paul Volcker, who I believe he's trying to emulate, he was the Fed uh, chair that uh tamed inflation coming out of the Carter administration. He's the one that everybody thought was crazy when he raised the Fed funds rate into the double digits territory when mortgages were 18% for a while. I think he's trying to emulate him. Well, Volcker in hearing said, yeah, we need some help here from the fiscal folks. That means quit spending so damn much. But you even mentioned that to Joe Biden. Five alarm fire! You see the problem? So he won't won't say anything negative about his boss, just like Corrine Jean-Pierre. And I get it. She works directly for him. But the Fed is supposed to be a bit of an independent entity. And it's really difficult to devise effective monetary policy when you're fighting really bad fiscal policy. Just to clarify for folks that may not know the distinction, the fiscal policy would be laws, regulations, et cetera, that come out of the government. Monetary policy comes out of the Fed. More specifically, it's it's the Fed funds rate, the benchmark interest rate, and also their ability to print money. The Treasury prints it, but they order it, if you will. They have the authority to do so. And they do it by buying bonds, taking bonds off the market, putting cash in its place, and that's what fuels inflation. So we had a protracted period of low zero interest rates, lots of bond buying. The Fed's balance sheet ballooned because they're buying all these bonds, adding assets to the balance sheet in exchange for cash being injected into the economy. Well, what the hell do you think is going to happen when you got a lot of cash? So here's the problem. If we start seeing a tightening of capital, and that means a reduction of economic activity, well, guess what happens? Less supply. And so many times on the program we said, we need to be bolstering 
supply as a way to offset outsized demand to, to combat inflation. Let's start with the oil and gas industry. We've said it so many times. I am glad to see that is there is a bill to unleash the American energy industry in the Republican-controlled House. It has been labeled HR1, meaning it is the top priority. You remember we discussed it before on the program, what HR1 was under the Democrat-controlled House? Yeah, stupid voting rights crap. Basically meaning anybody can vote anywhere at any time is what they wanted. And anything less than that is systemic racism. We're coming right back uh, with more after Super Talk News, Fox News at 1120. Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist with Super Talk. And now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. From the movie Vision Quest, only the young wanted to uh, provide a little update on my friend. You know, I said yesterday I was undergoing uh, open heart surgery. Oh yeah, surgery went well. He is in ICU on a vent, which I believe is 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 typical, right? After that sort of surgery, probably allow you to heal, keep a little pressure off of you. Oh so. yeah. Uh, got that update uh, late yesterday, so of course not allowed to have any visitors or or really interact with any, anyone. To try a little later through his spouse and find out if I can talk to him. But appreciate the prayers and concerns there, and hopefully he's uh, on his way well uh, on his way to a full recovery. But uh, you know, once again, it's the marvel of medical science. You know, you don't think about it until you, you use it and need it, and then it kind of comes into view, does it not? And it's just incredible uh, what can be done, what humans can do, what humans can create. This is why we got to keep government the hell out of the way, because the more they, they introduce themselves into economic activity, and it just thwarts human innovation. I, I'm concerned about Obviously, the the banking situation and more intrusion there. Of course, health care. you got to be concerned about that. As we mentioned in the uh, prior segment, the president had a bit of a celebration yesterday as the Affordable Care Act turned 13. Hard to believe, 13. He said that uh, saving lives, quote, doesn't mean much to our Republican friends. We want everybody to die. Obviously. He criticized MAGA Republicans. Why why are they always described with that adjective, MAGA? What does that mean? He criticized them for their opposition to the Affordable Care Act, of course, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Kamala Harris, two of the most clueless 
lawmakers ever to grace Washington, remember Nancy Pelosi famously said, well, you have to pass the bill in order to see what's in it. Other top-level Democrats were on hand for the celebration. He said the Affordable Care Act has been law for 13 years. This is Joe Biden. It has developed deep roots in this country. It has become a critical part of our health care and saving lives. We always talk about the cost, but it saved lives as well. Now, I don't have any data to refute that, but what data does he have to prove it? Or is that just to just pick information out that sounds good and throw it out there? And, yeah, 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 save lives, yeah. Not the vaguer, the better. Yeah, exactly. We live in the abstract, it seems. Obviously, that doesn't mean much to our Republican friends, he continued. <laughs> Remember, they famously used the the throw granny off the cliff images very effectively. He said, uh, MAGA Republicans are intent on repealing the ACA, though it would have a, quote, devastating impact on Americans. He once again attempted to be a little friendly towards Republicans, saying, you know, there are some, quote, good ones. (laughs) But then he stated that the party was largely not your father's Republican Party. Well, what do you think the Democrat Party is? It's a socialist, borderline communist party. Now, this is, of course, on the same day that his approval ratings are 38%. The polls were released the same day. He hasn't made a formal campaign announcement for 24 yet, though. This is uh, an incredibly low approval rating. Now, the folks over there at MSNBC, that's where the old race lady works, (laughs) Joy Reid. I haven't heard from her in a while. She hasn't said anything, I guess, too remarkable (laughs) I'm sure she does every day, but the standard's pretty high for her because every single show is full of stupid rhetoric. But the MSNBC folks are gushing as the Affordable Care Act turns 13, says it's never been stronger. Well, it is true that more people are enrolled in the exchanges and, and, you know, Ronald, most people, when they think about the Affordable Care Act, that's what they think about. I think they what comes to mind immediately are these exchanges, these marketplaces where one can shop for coverage. And uh, I don't know. I think I would argue that most people, when they think of Obamacare, they think of how much their insurance costs now versus what it cost before. Well, you could, you could be right. Uh, um, not certainly not discounting that, and, and they would attribute it to that. Because and, for every person that claims they're saving money, there's a dozen that are paying uh, through the nose. That I believe is true, too. Um, but I guess when you hear the term Obamacare, typically maybe that's a, a, a more accurate assessment, is that that's associated with the exchanges. Uh, the, the two major 
aspects of extending coverage were, in fact, to create these exchanges, these marketplaces where one can can purchase coverage with subsidies, significant subsidies. We've talked about this extensively. They were just enhanced in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, where the subsidy, or the percentage that is applied to household income that is used to determine the maximum amount of premiums. It's it's expressed and calculated as an ex, as a percentage of income. If you're in the income bracket, for example, that uh, that range of incomes where your premiums are two percent, it's going to be two percent times your income. That's how much you pay. It's not like okay, here's X dollars for subsidy. In fact, it computes what your premium costs are as a percentage of your income. That's the way the exchanges work. The other big part of it, of course, was Medicaid expansion, expansion to of Medicaid benefits to able-bodied adults. Since 1965 and up until uh, the law was passed in 2010, the Affordable Care Act, able-bodied adults could not participate in Medicaid, were not allowed to enroll in Medicaid. That changed. It was expected that all 50 states would do that. Actually, there wasn't a choice in the original law The suit that made its way to the Supreme Court challenging the individual mandate, meaning Americans would have to pay a fee, if you will, a fine, penalty, for not having coverage, that was challenged. The Supreme Court upheld it, said, yeah, it's okay, the government can impose that. But as part of that ruling handed down by the court, It also said, but we can't require states to expand Medicaid as a condition of remaining in base Medicaid. That was a key ruling that came out of the Supreme Court because the original law required it. And that's why we've got 39, maybe 40 states now that have expanded, 10, 11. I can't keep up with the latest number. It's either either 10 or 11, which haven't, because it's dynamic. It's states are constantly considering, as Mississippi has. Um, but nonetheless, it's the vast majority have have uh, elected to participate in that expansion of the program to able-bodied adults. But that was an absolute requirement until the Supreme Court. And everybody, of course, is mad at Justice Roberts because he's the one that voted with the left-leaning justices to uphold the mandate, but it was also him that, uh, I guess, drafted the opinion, if you will, that said we can't require the states to expand Medicaid just to stay in existing Medicaid. And so it's kind of a bittersweet ruling in that respect. You remember then Donald Trump repealed the mandate. Yeah, with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. That's exactly right. Just another reason why the Democrats hate him and that act. No doubt. Those MAGA Republicans. <laughs> when we come back, we've got Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist with Super Talk Mississippi News, right here in the Element Well Studios is Peter Frampton. Plays an old George Harrison great tune, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Coming right back. Yeah. 
talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. There we go, a little ZZ Top bumping us into this segment here on Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios. Joining us now, Caleb Sailors, multimedia journalist with Super Talk Mississippi News. I get a little PTSD when I hear that music. I'm like, oh no, I gotta go get a cast in real quick. Oh no, did I load my 12 o'clocks or my 1 o'clocks in on time? <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. In the old days, it was typewriters. That was the uh, the, <laughs> the music, because that's how we did the news. <laughs> All right, Caleb, tell us what's going on. Give us a little update uh, to start with on the ballot initiative, which seems like it's dead, dead, dead in the legislature. You know what they say, nothing's ever dead, dead, dead until it truly is, but it looks like we will not be getting anything done on ballot initiative this year. It looks like it'll be deferred in the next session. The House and Senate just can't agree. They can't agree on the number of signatures. The House wants 106,000 signatures. The Senate's like, no, that's not enough. We need 240,000 signatures. And, you know, we had Senator McCon on earlier, and we had Representative Fred Shanks on earlier. And um, it just seems like those two entities haven't really seen eye to eye on the matter. And there seems to be some sort of infighting between the two chambers on the yeah. issue. But uh, the House specifically representative shanks seems to be very adamant that you know the initiative process is something that's very important despite the supreme court shutting it down in 2021 they believe that you know we should be able the citizens should be able to enact legislation and not rely on the session the you know 90 days that they're working on proposing new laws in mississippi so at this point as it stands uh, the citizens really don't have uh, a process Mm-mm. by which they can uh, essentially redress their their government through the initiative. You just have to hope that your local representative is doing what he or she was elected to do and I don't know some some people don't feel that way some people feel that it's better for the citizens to have their own right to vote or to enact legislation themselves yeah. but this year we will not be most likely not be seeing anything from ballot initiative. It's it's a bit surprising that there's uh, this big of a delta between the the House and and their attitude towards this versus the Senate. Yeah, I don't I don't understand what that's about. I don't understand the feud or the I don't know, the level of angst between the two of them, especially regarding the signature number. It seems a little arbitrary to me, but I don't know. That's that's. A little minor spat they have on the issue, and we'll we'll see what they do on it again next session. Yeah, no doubt. All right, what about ballot harvesting? That's something that got more attention in the last presidential cycle and to some extent in the midterms uh, than ever. I don't think folks even thought about it, but in the state of Mississippi, the governor has signed a bill which would essentially prohibit ballot harvesting. Yes, Governor Tate Reeves signed Senate Bill 2538 into law saying that, you know, ballot, ballot harvesting is illegal in Mississippi. You can't do it only if you're going to send in a vote by mail, only like USPS workers or anybody specifically designated by the state can pick up that ballot. So you can't have political operators picking up, going to like a nursing home and taking all of those ballots and submitting them to be, you know, 
accounted for as a vote. And I think the, the governor's uh, stance on it and the legislature's stance on it, the ones who voted for the bill, was that it kind of opens up Pandora's box for corruption. You saw what happened in Pennsylvania and Georgia and in Arizona in the last election cycle. And a lot of people thought that there was fraud with regards to the mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting in and of itself. And I believe you know Governor Reeves is probably like, yeah, we don't want to open up that kind of avenue for there to be any kind of corruption in our legislature. And I know Secretary of State Michael Watson was big on promoting this legislation. He was very proud of the governor for getting it signed into law. Yeah. Well, it, it just creates all kinds of problems for those, such as the Secretary of State, who are trying to maintain the integrity of elections. It it can uh, just get a little radical and out of control before you know it. And, and it uh, there's certainly people who need help to mm-hmm. get their ballot. They're, they're perhaps uh, convalescing um, or there are other issues. It could be in their home, could be in a nursing home or a medical facility, and they just can't go. Mm-hmm. on uh, election day and so it's it's reasonable for someone to assist them get their ballot done and get it turned in so they can exercise their their right but when you've got political people out that are soliciting them mm-hmm. is what it boils down to that kind of crosses the line yeah and that's why there are parameters set in place where are there are individuals that are given permission by the state you know the USPS can your postal worker can pick up your ballot a family member someone designated by the state it's just to keep bad actors from acting with nefarious purposes yeah absolutely Foreign-owned land, uh, this is something else we've seen uh, that's gotten a lot of attention of late. Uh, China, in particular, has been uh, uh, fairly busy across the country buying land. So China owns, this was from, I believe, uh, Becky Curry said this on air here, that China owns approximately 192,000 acres of farmland in the U.S., and she enacted this legislation, uh, House Bill 280, that would initially it served to prevent foreign agencies or foreign governments from purchasing land in Mississippi. Well, the bill was amended, and now it says there's a study group created, and the governor signed this into law now, so there will be a study group looking into matters on foreign-owned land in um, Mississippi, kind of the effects thereof of you know whether they purchase land, what they use it for. I don't know if, if China owns any land in Mississippi specifically. I know that the majority of foreign-owned land in Mississippi is owned by the Netherlands. Hmm. They've owned like 70-something thousand acres in hmm. Leake County. I didn't know that. Yes. And it's a lot of like forestry. Are they cultivating woodland. it, farming it? Yes. Or? Okay. And, and using the wood. And, okay. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, so the purpose of the bill, though, I think that's why they created the study group because I think – they're not trying to prevent all foreign entities from purchasing land in Mississippi because you can have good economic development here in the state. You know, working with the you see with Turberg Taylor Group, you know, it's a foreign entity working with a Mississippi company, and there's really nothing wrong with that. They're just not wanting China to come in here and purchase the land, and then like there was another state where. China owned a chicken plant or chicken farm, and they just killed off the chickens during COVID to create supply chain issues. And so our representatives and even Agriculture Commissioner Andy Gibson was sounding the alarm on that, saying we don't want this happening in Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, so this sort of legislation has gained traction in other states as well. Yes. I believe Missouri is another one. Hmm. Well, uh, given that they seem to have risen to the level of being our our biggest threat 
from a security perspective, national security perspective, our most ardent foe. Uh, of course, the TikTok hearings that have been going on the last uh, couple of days in Washington have uh, really got folks thinking about how much we want China to be uh, kind of woven into our society. When, when you see uh, in, on the congressional level nationally, when you see Democrats and Republicans coming together and agreeing True. that TikTok may not be the safest platform, and, and if you're not even allowed to have TikTok on your government device in D.C. and even here in the state of Mississippi, that's why legislature or legislators nationally were like, yeah, we, we need to look into this, despite the CEO saying, no, China's not spying on anybody. Right. And so – our most precious asset in Mississippi is our agriculture and our farmland, and that's our most valuable resource. And I think the state's looking to protect that, especially for bad actors, you know, more specifically China. So to clarify at this point, this bill simply authorizes the governor to form a study group, yes, right? Yes, to form it a study group. doesn't prohibit the sale of land. No. It yeah. initially served to do that, but they amended it. They're like, ah, this is a bridge too far. We're not going to prevent the Netherlands from buying land in Leake County. I mean, there's no evidence that they're doing anything bad with that land. Yeah. So it's just a study group to look into the matter. All right, so the whitetail deer situation, something we talked about early on and really haven't said much about it since then. What's up with that? Well, there were two pieces of legislation on it, one on the House side, one on the Senate side. Both died. But there are um, there's a lot of speculation, and we and Ricky Matthews has done a great job yes, on has. Mississippi Outdoors. He had James Cummins on recently, the head of um, Mississippi – what was he? Wildlife Mississippi. Yeah. I had to think for a yeah. second. Well, they're talking about – there's – some individuals possibly looking to buy and sell or buy white-tailed deer and put them in high-fence enclosures and have people to pay to hunt on their land. And the problem with that is you risk chronic wasting disease spreading because you're taking deer from one habitat, putting them into another, and you don't want the chronic wasting disease killing off a population of deer. And then there's other fundamental differences that – the people on the fair chase hunting side have they don't like the idea of deer being placed in a high fence it's not they don't see that as real hunting they see you know you go out in the woods and hunt your animal not you know yeah. have it in a high fence all right before you go as we're bumping out here old miss women's basketball women's basketball team playing tonight at 9 p.m on espn shout out to coach yo they're in the sweet 16 they went from being winless in conference play two seasons ago to now have a chance to be in the elite eight so shout out to coach yo and the old miss women's basketball team absolutely unbelievable caleb sailors everyone multimedia journalist super talk mississippi news thanks for coming on thanks gerard i appreciate it we're coming right back with more we've got mike hurst former u.s attorney at 1205 stay with us TV. Hey, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are pleased that you join us today. So, I was talking earlier about my uh, lottery board hearing yesterday. That's the process, of course. Governors, the governor appoints, and then the, the Senate has the responsibility to advise and consent. And uh, the Mississippi Today wasted no time in publishing an article. So it's about some of the governor's appointments. And the, the headline, the title of this article, Governor Tate Reeves Taps Another Major Campaign Donor for Government Appointment. Hmm. And it goes on to discuss the appointment of Kent Niku, president and CEO of Gulfport Memorial Hospital, to serve the remainder of the term of gaming commissioner Al Hopkins, who passed away in February. Now, it turns out, by the way, that that particular seat of the three gaming commissioner seats that particular seat requires that the holder of it, the commissioner, reside in a county that houses casinos. So if he's confirmed, which I believe he will be, the, the, um, that would be, it's in according, according to the Mississippi Today, another major Reeves donor on the Gaming Commission. Also includes Frank Lee, good friend of mine. He uh, is the CEO, family-founded Tower Loan. He's also on the commission. Now, I can tell you, folks, despite what is written here, the governor had to twist his arm quite a bit to take this appointment. He, he really was... He's just not his deal. He's extremely successful. His company is, runs a great business. And it's not like, this is what's missing in all this, Rhino. You, you're not enriched by, <laughs> by serving on these boards. It's quite the opposite. It is truly public service. You don't get compensated. And it consumes time. It's it's public service. You're being asked to serve by your governor. And when Governor Phil Bryant called me about this possibility right after the law passed in 18, I said, Governor, i got to ask you two questions. And he said, uh, sure, Gerard, before I accept your, your generous thought. I said, uh, is this a compensated position? I wasn't sure. I think in some states maybe it is. He said, no, it's not. I said, okay. Will this entity receive any taxpayer funding? No, it won't. I said, okay, good, I'm in. Because if the answer to any of those questions had been yes, I would have declined. I don't need it, and I don't need the hassle, if you guys know where I'm going there. Because you're handling that much money. You're overseeing an organization with that much money. And already... 
lotteries, gaming. Already there's constant scrutiny, which should be, honestly. A lot of money flows through. You want folks of the highest integrity involved in this. But, wow, imagine if this had received taxpayer funding. That, I think, would intensify the scrutiny. Be it warranted or not, that really wouldn't matter. It's just every move made, everything you see, somebody's going to point fingers and try to attach that somehow to the taxpayer money. And so in this case, the the wisdom of the of our law, the Alice G. Clark lottery law, is that it is it is really more of a private sector entity and and I I find myself having to clarify this a lot, which is fine, because it's unless you you're really into it, you wouldn't know, but it is a corporation, the Mississippi Lottery Corporation. Distinguish it from the Mississippi Gaming Commission. And in Simply put, the Gaming Commission regulates an industry. It regulates the casino gaming industry. It doesn't produce revenue. The Commission doesn't. The casinos do. And they pay taxes, a gaming tax, upon establishment of casino gaming in the state of Mississippi back in the 90s. The Mississippi Lottery Corporation, however, is a separate revenue profit-producing entity that is wholly owned by the taxpayers of the state of Mississippi. Legally, it is described as an instrumentality of the state. I never even heard that term until this appointment, because I, I was asked that, and I went to our lawyers, and I said, how do you describe this thing? And they said, yeah, you should describe it as an instrumentality of the state. Fair enough. And ever since that is taken. But... It produces revenue, generates revenue, throws off what are called net proceeds from an, a technical accounting perspective, and 100% of those net proceeds go to the state treasurer. The treasurer is then compelled by the law to allocate the first $80 million in a fiscal year to the state highway fund and the excess to the education enhancement fund. But this article goes on to say that gaming commissioners receive a modest salary from taxpayers. It's really not a salary. It's $40 per day of work when they meet, when they convene. I think they meet monthly, if I'm not mistaken. And they're reimbursed by the state for travel and meals, which really isn't a lot. It's 40 bucks. I can assure you, my good friend, frankly... He don't care about 40 bucks. I promise, folks. But therein lies the rub. you got to consider the source, and the source here has never seemingly been able to tell the truth. They love to spin. They love to impart their personal bias and still call themselves news. But, so let's think about this from a practical perspective. I know that's kind of hard to cut through in some circles, but from a practical perspective... Do you want people on, like, a gaming commission that aren't well off financially? I'm not saying that if you're not, not saying whatsoever, that you might engage in some sort of impropriety. But the fact is that when there are opportunity and need, often that does drive. Ask Shad White, who's an auditor, deals with this daily. 
And you hear him discuss it frequently, right? Opportunity, opportunity. We got to make sure there's no opportunity. Right. That's auditing 101. So you would want people who don't need, aren't likely to be tempted by any sort of financial influence, shall we say. Isn't that what you want in these positions? Yeah, but that requires more gray matter and cognitive abilities than the muckrakers have at their disposal. I see. Well, I can tell you this. The governor, regardless of what you think about Governor Phil Bryant, his uh, his office, his chief of staff shared with me that after the lottery law was enacted, over 250 people contacted him expressing their interest to be on this board. You know what the governor did? Eliminated them. That's wise on his part. Like, why do you want this? Do you think you're going to get in this position? And I don't know who these people are. I'm just saying, what would motivate someone to do that? And you can't conclude that necessarily there was anything improper in their motivation, in their request. You can't do that. But the governor had the good sense to say, you know what, I'm going to go after people that don't even know this is coming. I got called out of the blue one day. I didn't expect it. Um, But it it turns out that the governor and his office, in checking with other states, they told them, on your board, you need folks that bring these kind of balance of skills to the table. Well, one of those, you can imagine, happens to be IT, because the lottery is nothing but one big dang computer system. That's what it is. So that's, that's kind of my function. And obviously some business experience as well uh, into that mix. But if you look at the way he appointed the board, I think he did a, a, a really good job there in, in assembling folks to bring the expertise. So the other point I was going to make about this article, that's not ever mentioned, the qualifications of any of these people. That's not That doesn't even come into play. It's just, oh, they donated to the governor. As if we donated to get a lottery board appointment. Are you kidding me? Because he did mention me as well, by the way. Uh, And I'll, I'll read exactly what it says in the article when we come back on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. For my good friend, Representative Fred Shanks. He's a big fan of that tune. He was on uh, the Gallo show this morning with Lucian Smith filling in. So, uh, last thing about this article, Rhino, this is what it says. Another one of Reeves' pending appointments is Gerard Gibbard, the host of a conservative Super Talk Mississippi radio show and regular campaign donor of Reeves. Gibbert first appointed to the Mississippi Lottery Corporation board by former Governor Phil Bryant, was reappointed by Reeves this year after writing several checks to Reeves' campaign accounts since 2017. 
Oh, that's what I was thinking about in 17. Well, obviously. <laughs> uh, let me get this straight. The law <laughs> was passed in August of 18. It's almost like the numbskull editor of the Muckraker Today had an agenda before writing the article. I'm not sure what it is, though, honestly, and I, I'm happy to answer any to questions. To be antagonistic to anybody that's Republican or conservative or to the right of him. Well, you know, I'm not going to apologize. We've done damn good work, and I'm I'm happy to be part of the success of this endeavor. It's wildly successful, way beyond our our uh, expectations beyond the legislature's expectation beyond the governor's expectations and i'm not taking credit for that i'm just a small part of it we were blessed with a great board a great law honestly that enabled us to really flourish and a fantastic team that's, what's wrong with that why don't they ever talk about that like well gee if the thing's successful Maybe we want those people to stay involved. It'd be like having a star employee, and I'm not saying I'm that whatsoever. But you want to keep good teams together, do you not? If they're producing, you start making changes when they're not. That's kind of how we normally operate, but we've seen we've lost sight of that. Everything's got to be politicized. I just got to make that point. That's... For forty dollars, and they got to make this point. You get forty dollars? You kidding me? Forty bucks? I can't even remember the last time I got forty bucks. <laughs> Incredible. Dan in Hattiesburg says, "Wow, Gerard, you had quite the foresight to see how all this would play out." <laughs> oh gosh, it would be like saying serving for jury duty and making 30 bucks a day, you're doing it for the money. I agree. I agree. Now, it's, a, it's another situation, though, where we, we tend to focus on nothing burgers and we don't focus on what... Well, that's pretty much the entirety of that publication. Well... Giant stack of nothing burgers. Uh, well, well, let's Sprinkled be honest. with Democrat talking points. By far... The biggest abuse of office, of power, of, of uh, enrichment through cronyism is the president's son. Nothing could be worse than that. Nothing. That's just clear, blatant. The fact that something already hasn't happened from a legal perspective is kind of mind-boggling. I do think that's hurting, figure in, figuring into his... If you or I had a laptop suddenly come up as evidence to the authorities with over 400 examples of law-breaking, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be free to run about and collect our businesses. Correct. Totally correct. Got a question. What lotto games contribute to the Mississippi County Road Department? John in Hancock County. I don't know that I can answer that, John. All I know is that in accordance with the law, the first $80 million of net proceeds produced by the Mississippi Lottery Corporation in a fiscal year are transferred by the state treasurer to the state highway fund. So it's just commingled. It's just additional revenue into the state highway fund. That money is then allocated by the Mississippi Department of Transportation and the, and the uh, transportation 
uh, commissioners. So that that's the process. This is just more revenue, essentially, that, that is added to the other main source of revenue, which is fuel taxes that goes into the state highway fund, which is completely separate from the general fund. I hope that I hope that answers the question. So I don't really understand, I don't pretend to understand the process of allocating money uh, to the various road and bridge infrastructure needs of the state. I know the transportation commissioners are obviously very heavily involved in that, as is the um, Department of Transportation. That's where all that decision-making ha- occurs. The lottery simply produces additional revenue for that fund. That's its purpose. And it does that, transfers it once a month to the state treasurer. Actually, all the proceeds go to the state treasurer. It's the state treasurer's responsibility to then uh, disperse that into the state highway fund until it hits the $80 million in a fiscal year, and then the excess goes to the Education Enhancement Fund, the acronym EEF. That's all handled by the state treasurer, all in accordance with the Alice G. Clark Lottery Act. We are taking a break right here. It's Super Talk News, Fox News next. After that, we've got Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney in the Element Well Studios. We'll get his thoughts and opinions on the potential indictment of Donald Trump. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, rocking into the afternoon portion of the show. Joining us now is Mike Hurst, former U.S. Attorney. Mike, good to see you again. Hey, Gerard. Great to see you, too. All right, so we got uh, President Donald Trump is under the uh, the microscope in the crosshairs, shall we say, of uh, New York City D.A. Alvin Bragg. He's just bound and determined to get the uh, the photo op of Trump in a, in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs on. I think the artificial intelligence has beat him to it. So. That's right. I've seen some of that, too. So, honestly, uh, counselor, uh, for us lay people, non-lawyers uh, out there, I ain't really exactly sure what the law that's broken is here. Can right. you explain that? Well, it, what's being reported in the press is that the Manhattan District Attorney is looking at charging Trump with falsifying business records, second degree, okay. in New York state law. And, and basically what that is is a misdemeanor. Okay. It means a misdemeanor is something that is a crime, but it's not punishable more by more than one year in prison. So okay. we're not even talking about a felony count. And what has been reported in the press is that if the DA can find evidence to support a felony count, it would have to be a felony related to that falsification of business records, i.e., it would have to involve another felony. So what they're saying is based, you know, and, and what the press is saying is most of all of this is based upon Trump's now disgraced, felony convicted, prison serving former personal attorney Michael Cohen. 
if you remember, he was convicted of multiple counts. I think it was like eight counts of violating, um, you know, illegal campaign contributions, um, evading personal tax, personal income taxes, and making false statements to, to banks. And he served prison time for that. But from what the press has been reporting, he has been interviewed by the Manhattan District Attorney more than something like 27 times about this incident. And Habitual so, liar. Yeah, and that as a prosecutor, you know, obviously we do we do sometimes have to use individuals who've been convicted of crimes to move up the chain, move up the hierarchy. But in this case, the problem is just this I think it was just this past week, um, the grand jury in New York heard from Michael Cohen's former attorney. Right. And his former attorney, uh, according to him, he told the grand jury that Michael Cohen told his attorney that, no, this was something Cohen did on his own to protect Melania Trump from knowing about the affair, and he did it without any knowledge of Trump. Okay. So, so you know when you have when you have the guy's former attorney telling the grand jury that, and you got the guy Michael Cohen telling the grand jury one thing. I mean, that's a lot of reasonable doubt that has to be considered. Now, now, just so your listeners know, all that a grand jury has to have is probable cause, fifty-one percent, to believe that hmm. a crime has been committed in order to return an indictment. Okay. Once you get to trial, the prosecutors have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. But different standard. That's why you hear the old cliche. You know, you can prosecute a ham sandwich because yeah. it has to only be probable cause. Okay. So that's that. I think that's the real concern here. Is if the 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 Manhattan District Attorney moves forward with this, does not have the evidence, does not have the credible credible witnesses, does not have what he needs to get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. What hell is he going to release on that this country sense. by indicting the first ever indictment of a former United States president? Do you believe that Cohen's attorney's testimony is really what caused them to decide not to meet? It's it's questionable. I, I believe he testified at the, earlier this week. Um, all by all indications, the the media thought that the indictment was going to come down Wednesday. They were scheduled to meet uh, yesterday, Thursday, and it was called off. And then uh, apparently the 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 grand jury does not meet on Friday. So it could okay. have been that um, there were there were press reports. Michael Cohen was on standby to be called back to the grand jury after his attorney basically contradicted everything he said, uh, but he was not. He was not called back. He was not uh, brought back to the grand jury to testify. You know, Gerard, I, I think maybe what is happening here is, um, and I don't have any insider information, but the New York Police Department, law enforcement in, in the city of New York, they probably realize with all the bombastic statements the president's been making about protesting and about standing up and just getting out, they probably worried about the response that this might engender in the city of New York and probably trying to get their ducks in a row, you know, whatever they need to take in order to make sure the city is secure. That, that's what I think. Well, the New York Post published a, uh, a rather scathing article concerning D.A. Bragg, said, fumbling his Trump case, Alvin Bragg exposes his incompetence nationwide. And, and what's a head-scratcher? Uh, here, Mike, is that it was in 22, right, when the DE said there's there's nothing here and we're not going forward with this case. Well, and and I, I think the Wall Street Journal did a good uh, editorial on this. It, it, it's really 
you really have to question where he's going with this because let me back up for a few things. One, D.A. Bragg is a progressive prosecutor. He campaigned on the idea of we need to stop prosecuting nonviolent crime. What are we talking about, Gerard? We're, <laughs> talking, about a, we're talking about a misdemeanor falsifying a business record. If yeah, there was no ever a was nonviolent, harmed. yeah, if there was ever a nonviolent crime, it's that. So that's that's <laughs> number one. Number two is in in the last year in 2022, overall violent crime in the city of New York increased by almost 25 percent. Overall violent crime. So why in the heck is the DA going after a misdemeanor falsification of business records when he's got an almost 25% increase in violent crime in his city? That makes absolutely no sense. And the third thing is, here, in order to get a felony, not only does he have to prove falsification of business records, he has to prove intent on Trump's part to do that in furtherance of another crime. In this case, it would probably be something like, you know, Campaign federal campaign finance laws. The problem with that is the 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 federal prosecutors have already passed on that. That's what I thought. And, yeah. and we're and we're now here. We are seven years, <laughs> seven years after the uh, alleged crime has occurred, and this progressive prosecutor in New York is seeking to bring a misdemeanor charge against a former United States president. Well, it's another blatant example of, of weaponization of, of government for political gain. I mean, we're, we're seeing that quite a bit of late, and uh, this really, I think, shows it uh, in, in full light, honestly, in this case. It reminds me when the um, when Attorney General... Um, back in the, I think it was the early 40s, uh, spoke to a group of uh, United States attorneys. It was like the second convening of, of this group of United States attorneys. In his speech, he said, the greatest, the, the most powerful peacetime force that we in this country know are prosecutors. Huh. And so, I mean, think about it. I mean, prosecutors hold in the balance individuals' liberty True. or freedom. True. And for so long, we have respected those opinions. We respected that discretion. We respected people who put in those positions to make the right calls and make the right decisions. And in this case, to your point, I think one of the Trump spokespeople said, this is the weaponization of the injustice system. Hmm. When you have someone who is doing something clearly for political reasons – I don't know if it's for just for political reasons, it's, as you said earlier, for fame, for glory, for whatever. But he's getting a lot of pushback. You know, he had two two prosecutors in his office quit because he did not bring an indictment against Trump relating to the the, the previous prosecution mm-hmm. of Trump organization. And so, you know, is is that what's pressuring him? One of his prosecutors, I, I hear, wrote a book about all of this has come mm-hmm. out. And so, is he getting pressure not only from the extreme left, but it seems like he's getting a lot of pressure from the media to do this as well. Yeah, even they're calling him out. Absolutely. And, and some Democrats as well. And, and New York, Mike, is not unique in this situation. Uh, of course, you're familiar with, uh, his name escapes me, the individual in Los Angeles that just seems hell-bent on uh, not prosecuting anybody that commits some of these crimes, it's, and their cities are unsafe it's, as it's, a result. It's, it, you can go on social media almost every single day and see videos of just complete 
chaos, rampant criminal behavior, and especially in the big cities that you mentioned where these progressive prosecutors said anything under you know $1,000, anything right. that is, quote, unquote, nonviolent crime, if, if, you, if you stick to that, you're not going to have any businesses in any areas. You're not going to have any law-abiding citizens wanting to live in those areas. I mean, it, it's, it's just the continual downgrade of our civilized society to no allow – law to be broken and there would be no consequences. Uh, George Gascon, his name occurred to me. So can you hang around for Absolutely. another segment? Yeah, yeah, we'll talk some more. We've got uh, Mike Hurst, former U.S. attorney in the Element Well Studios, and we're coming right back. with Gerard Super Talk Mississippi Back in the Element Well Studios, Mike Hurst is our guest, former U.S. attorney. We've been chatting about this uh, possible Trump indictment. That kind of the jury is still out, no pun intended. But it's uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg that is in hot pursuit of the former president, looking to make a big old name for himself. I don't think it's uh, going to stop until he's got Trump in uh, an orange jumpsuit, handcuffed. But Donald Trump, of course, not one to uh, lay low whenever he's being attacked. <laughs> no, that's definitely not his middle name, laying low, Trump. <laughs> so this morning, I think it just happened. It may have been late yesterday. He posted on uh, Truth Social, his social media platform, uh, a photo of him, kind of a split-screen photo, which shows Donald Trump in, in uh, one of the images holding a baseball bat with his eyes uh, kind of pointed over, cut over to another photo right next to it on the right of Alvin Bragg. And uh, it's almost as if he's making like a physical threat. And he, and he goes on to post, you know, what kind of person can change another person, in this case a former president, charge, pardon me, charge another person who got more votes than any city president in history, et cetera, et cetera. So... He says um, no crime has been committed, and also he should keep in mind the potential death and destruction that could occur on the heels of such a false charge. It could be catastrophic I, yeah, for I our think, country. I think that's what the real concern. I mean, the photos, yeah, obviously, you know, 
Hyper- hyperbolic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but the concern is that the reference to death and destruction that could occur. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's. I, I read. I think it was in that Wall Street Journal editorial. Why do this? These are these are unforced errors in the journal's opinion on Trump's part. Because what happens is, if something, if this indictment comes out, there are protests. Those protests turn into riots. Those riots turn into real violence. Those real violence turn into, as he said, death and destruction. Then that is laid at the feet of Donald Trump. Would that be incitement? Well, it, it could be. I mean, would this this Manhattan district attorney, absolutely it could be. Okay. But, you know, there, there have been questions. I've seen some... Legal commentators in the media talking about this could be considered not only threats against the Manhattan district attorney uh, himself, but it also could be considered obstruction of justice with regard to a grand jury investigation. So, well, it, yeah, I can it, see that. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, as a federal prosecutor, I I charged obstruction of justice. It was it was much more than this. But at the same time, there is so much wiggle room. And again, I get back to the fact that all you have to show to a grand jury to get an indictment is probable cause. And m- many of your reader uh, listeners may not know this, but in the grand jury, there's only one side. In the grand jury, there is the prosecutor, and there is no I see defense no defense. Counsel. Okay, yes, yeah. So sense. what the grand they jury lay the case what, what the grand jury receives are the are the the charges, the elements that support that charge, and the evidence that supports the elements to support the charge. Okay. So that's that's what the grand jury receives, and the grand jury is the ultimate decider. But at the same time, you know. If a if a prosecutor in this situation, the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, wanted to pursue that, he is more more than likely, in, as we've seen by what we've been reading, he's more than likely to do that. Okay, so it's it's stepping stone to full blown trial. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, in probable cause, uh, though, Counselor, I know you've been involved in a lot of this. Very subjective, is it not? Well, probable cause, yeah, it is. It's fifty-one percent, basically, is how the courts describe it. It's 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 a, it's more than not. Okay. If, that, if I can, you know, that's a good legal answer yeah. to you. Um, it, it's is is something going to occur? Probably more than it's not going to occur. Okay, makes sense. And so it's not it's not that heavy of a burden. It's not the burden that we put on uh, defendants who are again presumed innocent. Until proven guilty at trial, and that burden is beyond a reasonable doubt. Not beyond all doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt. And it only takes one juror in that instance to acquit someone. And I I think that's a great thing that we have in our system of justice. You have to have innocence until proven guilty. We've learned that from, you know, that's why we set this country up, because we were not getting that in England. Well, you know, so your explanation, by the way, was was actually. Excellent. I appreciate that. But but more importantly, my confidence that our system is sound uh, is renewed. I'm concerned about the actors in the system. Right. right. Yeah, that's always a concern for sure. That's always a concern, especially when uh, those actors who are wielding this prosecutorial power are elected officials. Right. And in this case, elected official in New York is pursuing a former United States president who resides in Florida. And so, again, gets back to, you know, you, you Manhattan District Attorney, have said your priorities are violent crime. 
you have said that you are not interested in going after nonviolent misdemeanors. Yet everything that you are doing with regard to this case contradicts what you have said to the public. And consuming lots of resources oh, out of his man, office. Oh, man, I can't Incredible. imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah, it's it, it truly is uh, a crazy but, deal. But don't forget, I mean, Trump still has the investigation in Georgia by the Fulton County District Attorney who's looking at into election interference there. He's got the investigation of the special prosecutors into mishandling, potential mishandling of classified documents and, you know, incitement uh, of the January 6th riots as well. And so. there's something going on at Mar-a-Lago as well? Yeah, that's the, that's the special counsel okay. investigation gotcha. of the mishandling of the classified documents. Uh, the right, problem so. with that case is we also have, you know, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, with issues of... Correct. You know, but he had them locked in his garage, so I'm sure that's perfectly okay. His his Corvette was protected, so everything's good. It's so. the two-tier legal system that just <laughs> agitates people. I'd be in one of them. So here's a question. Let's suppose the grand jury uh, convenes, uh, gets back on schedule, and uh, they vote, I guess it would be a vote, to indict. It would. Mm-hmm. All right. What happens to Donald Trump at that point? So at that point, the indictment would be returned. It would be put under seal with the court. A arrest warrant would be put under seal with a court. In this case, what I think would happen is um, the district attorney's office would reach out to the attorneys for Donald Trump. They would try to arrange a date when Trump would come into the Manhattan district attorney's office. In the Manhattan district attorney's office, he would be fingerprinted. His picture would be taken like a mugshot, and he would have the paperwork that he would have to fill out as anyone who's been charged with a, a okay. crime. At that point, in the in the Manhattan DA, DA's office, normally what happens is that individual is then put in a jail cell. And he sits in the jail cell right beside the courtroom awaiting him to walk into the courtroom for his arraignment. From what I've read, that ain't going to happen. I mean, the Secret Service has protection over the president of the United States and former presidents yeah. of the United States. And in this case, what I would see is the Secret Service coordinating with the DA's office, coordinating with the court system and the security for the court system, and ensuring that Trump is brought in under tight security of the Secret Service and be brought in uh, to the um, to the courtroom. At an initial appearance and arraignment, the uh, individual who's been charged would be they, the judge would walk through the indictment with him, read it if the person wants it. He would be asked, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? And in every situation, at that first appearance, the defendant pleads not guilty. Because he hasn't gotten any... No reason not yeah, to, right? He hasn't gotten any evidence from the prosecutor yet. He hasn't gotten any documents. He hasn't had a chance. He hasn't had his day in court. No, no deals on right. the table no, or no. anything so like that. So this is the initial appearance. Okay. So, so at that point, the clock would start running for the prosecutor to hand over what's called discovery, basically all the evidence the prosecutor has. Uh, if you've seen my cousin Vinny, you know, uh, Vinny was so excited when he asked the prosecutor <laughs> for the evidence. He's like, sure, I'll give you all the evidence. He's like, yes, i got to win. Like, no, that's what you're entitled to under our rules. But um, So, and, and, and now, going forward, I mean, New York has a backlog of cases. So he's not going to be put on trial for... He's not going to be put on trial for a year. At he least. wouldn't get any at special least. priority, no. right? No, I, I don't think he would. Okay. But again, I wouldn't think he'd be prosecuted for a misdemeanor that's seven years old of falsifying business <laughs> records. So who knows what's going to happen in New York City? But oh, that's kind man. of the process. I'll tell you, in the federal system, if any of those, let's take the special counsel cases, if they were to move forward and um, they would they were to get ready to indict Trump, the problem with that is next year is a presidential election year. 
And the Department of Justice has a policy oh, that man. that we don't interfere. DOJ doesn't interfere in elections. Oh, okay. So nothing if, – if it doesn't happen this year on the federal side, it's not going to happen next year. It would have to be 2025. So – they're literally racing the clock. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Mike Hurst, the former U.S. attorney, has been our guest. Thanks for coming in, Mike. Thanks, Gerard. Appreciate yeah, man. it. Coming right back. Half an hour left on Midday. Stay with us. Beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. asked if we'd seen the uh, performance of While My Guitar Gently Weeps at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of the great George Harrison. Yeah, have. Watch it uh, just regularly for entertainment. It's done in HD, so the the video and sound quality is awesome. And, uh, of course, it's an assortment of incredible artists, including Tom Petty and Jeff Beck and Jeff Lynn, and then all of a sudden, and um, what's his name? George Harrison's son. Um, what's his name? Donia? I don't know. Can't remember. My apologies for that. That yeah, Donnie. Yeah, got it. Okay. So, and then all of a sudden, enters stage right the great Prince in his uh, his red hat. <laughs> And he absolutely shreds the guitar. Maybe the best guitar riff solo I've ever heard. It's just fascinating to watch it. And uh, you got to go see it, folks. And it's, there's a a part in there where he, he's got all this, of course, already orchestrated with one of his many handlers, I'm sure. And he kind of falls backwards like he's fallen off the stage, but he's very gently, but he's caught, and then he's placed back up. But at the end, still a mystery, he chomps that guitar straight up in the air, and it stays up there. Nobody knows what happened. But I saw you comment to a, to somebody on the text line earlier about how Tom Petty tried to, like, maybe rein him in there because he kept going and he's cutting his eyes over, and Petty's looking at him. He's like, don't stop me, man. I got this. And he just keeps going. Yeah, out of all the great names on that stage, they kind of designated Tom Petty as the band leader, as the the grand poobah of the gathering, and not even he could rein in Prince's (laughs) solo. It. It just shows you what a talent that guy was. Because you don't normally think of him as, uh, you know, as just being an accomplished guitarist. But you do when you watch that. And, of course, he 
what he wrote, he sang, he arranged, he played virtually every instrument. Oh, yeah, he had his entire house. Every room in his house was wired up to where if at any moment he was hit with inspiration, he could record in that room. Unbelievable. Gone too soon, man. He'd still be doing it today. You know he would. Incredible. And, you know, was he a person, as I recall, that fairly scandal-free? I don't remember hearing any big scandals involving... You know, I mean, besides his like, proclivity to wear women's clothing. Yeah, uh, but he's an eccentric person. St- but he didn't thrust it on you, though. No. That's, you know, you want to go do that as an adult? I don't care. Just don't push it on me all the time. He was also apparently incredibly generous, but never wanted any fanfare for it. So it really only came out after his passing, all of the good he had done and all of the money he had donated. That's true. That's true. From Minneapolis. Incredible. But, yeah, Kyle, uh, appreciate you bringing that up. It, it is awesome. And folks ought to uh, take a look at it. It is illegal for foreigners to own land in China. It's something to consider. Uh, we were talking about Obamacare earlier, the Affordable Care Act, and the rising, rather precipitous cost of Insurance and one of our listeners said their insurance went from three hundred dollars to thirty six hundred a month within three years for a family of three. That's forty three thousand two hundred dollars a year. I'm struggling with that one. And the uh, the texter sent a fairly detailed account of it, but that's way beyond the national average and way beyond the state average of the cost of coverage family coverage, as it would be. So you get individual, individual and spouse, individual and family. Individual spouse, family. So it uh, says that the health care exchange is no good. The plans in it, like United Healthcare, are bad. But there are some 150,000 people in Mississippi that uh, have coverage from the exchanges. says deals with... Um, Filing claims every day. My wife owns a very small therapy clinic. The health exchange is still expensive with high deductibles. It just depends on your level of income. It's It maxes out at 9.8%. Actually, it came down in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's below 9% now. 8.6% is the number that comes to mind. So that's that times your household income is the most that you could pay in the way of premiums. And then you've got three different plans, the bronze, silver, gold, all with different coverage models and structures and deductibles, maximum out-of-pocket $3,000 a year, maximum, for co-pays and deductibles. says, go call Blue Cross Blue Shield or a broker and see what a plan will cost you. I, I have. Unless you work for a big company, that can get great rates. It's unaffordable for most. And so that's the distinction between the individual market and the, and the group market. Group market, of course, refers to the situation where you as an employee uh, enroll in health care coverage provided by your – offered by your employer. And by law, the employer has to offer – if there are more than 50 employees, if less than 50 employees are not subject to this, but more than 50, they have to offer – coverage that meets the minimum essential coverage requirements under the Affordable Care Act, and also it has to be, quote, affordable. 
which means that it cannot exceed that 8.6% of just the employee's income for uh, individual coverage. It's a safe harbor rule is what it's called, so it wouldn't extend to uh, family or or employee and spouse coverage. Most employers do pay some part of that. That's fairly typical. Uh, it averages about, uh, according to the insurance industry that collects this data, that averages about 75% of the individual's premiums, individual premiums, as, as um, reimbursement, the amount covered by the employer, which, by the way, is not subject. It's pre-tax. It's not considered income. That's one of the big disparities between individual, the individual market and the group market, that in the individual market, you don't get any credit any tax, uh, pref- preferential tax treatment. That's a, that's a disparity that the Congress ought to fix, in my view. But you do when you obtain uh, your insurance from your employer. Your premiums are pre-tax in that case. That's yeah, crazy. Jerry in Waynesboro sent an article. Peter Schiff says more bailouts are coming down the pike. Talking about the... Um, banking situation. Schiff is an interesting uh, financial guy, also uh, sort of an investigative reporter. I've played the sound here on the program before. Rhino, you remember, he's at the Democratic National Convention, I think it was in 12, if I'm not mistaken, where he, he, <laughs> he asks several of the attendees if they believe we should ban profits. You remember that? Yeah, I'm oh, yeah. all for that. Ban profits. No more profits. They don't need any profit. <laughs> that's how they think. Now, that's 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Before it really got crazy. Unbelievable. Uh, Kyle reminds, also mentioned that the people on the lottery board can't play the lottery. That is true in accordance with the law. I think it's a good provision. Members of the board and anyone who lives in their household that is an immediate family member, are precluded from playing the lottery. So are lottery employees and members of their household, lottery vendors and members of their household, and uh, owners of retailers and members of their household. I think it's a good provision of the law. My children, for example, are allowed to play because they don't live in my household, though they are my children. Mike and Gulfport says the person is jealous of the success of the lottery and you and then you have had proven success seems to infuriate those that can't achieve. You know, Mike, that's a that's a logical uh, I think conclusion. I'm not sure that's the case here. I think this is really more about trying to get a knock on the governor. More than anything, this is just we don't like the governor, we don't like his party, we don't like his policies, we want somebody different, and we're they're just sort of coming up with stuff to take shots at the government. You agree with that? Oh, yeah, and hiding behind news. Yeah, exactly. When we come back, we got to give away some tickets to Three Doors Down. And don't forget, today it's In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. You'll hear an interview with Mississippi entrepreneur Shelly Janice in a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar. 
Mississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. across the Super Talk Network. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. Before we get to the tickets, quick question here. What happened to the child tax credits? This is on the ceasefire text line. I've heard not only did they lower it to $2,000, but there isn't a refund, only a credit towards your taxes. Is this correct? Are you familiar with this? Yes. Also said, love the show, by the way. You and Rhino are great. Really appreciate the kind words. Real quick, so in 2022, uh, the law changed from 2021 and 2020, where the entire amount of the uh, credit was refundable, f- refundable, and in fact, it was increased in 2020 from $2,000 per child to $3,600 in 2021 for each child under six. The full amount refundable, meaning even if you didn't owe any taxes, you got the full amount right. So in 2022 and also in 2023, it's reverted back to the way it was before the pandemic where you get a $2,000 credit, but if you don't have enough taxes, a tax liability to use all that, at least 1500 of it is still fully refundable. hope that explained it. Go ahead, Rhino. Give some tickets away. Three Doors Downs coming to the Brandon Amphitheater on Saturday, September 9th. Tickets for the show are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com, or you can swing by the Brandon Amphitheater box office. But if you want a chance to win a pair of tickets, all you got to do is be number 28 today. Be the 28th person to text into the C Spire text line. That's 601-879-4395. Be the 28th person to text in the phrase, here without you. And you'll win a pair of tickets to see Three Doors Down at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon on September 9th. So uh, somebody said on the C Spire text line that Prince was a Republican. I didn't know that. Larry Amize wants to know who I'm voting for, Delbert or Chris McDaniel. I haven't decided yet, Larry, and I'm not sure I'd disclose that on the air. I don't know that that would be appropriate, honestly. I'm a Republican. I will be voting in the uh, Republican primary uh, once we advance to the general. I will clearly support the Republican uh, candidate in the general elections, as I as I always would. But uh, during the primary, I don't think it's appropriate for me to opine on that. We try to bring you the information uh, and, of course, we interview the candidates, and we hope to inform and educate, let people make their own minds up. I have lots of concerns about issues facing the state, and honestly, I'm still waiting to hear uh, 
answers to some of those critical issues, such as PERS. Nobody seems to want to touch that, just like Social Security and Medicare. It's not a politically popular subject matter, but it's going broke. It will crash under its own weight, and the taxpayers are on the hook for it. Where do we stand? I'm deeply concerned about health care in our state. That's not saying I support Medicaid expansion. I do not believe that Medicaid expansion is an exclusive solution to the troubles which are besetting the health care industry in our state. I think it's a serious problem. It ain't going to go away. And, I, and again, I say we need to convene uh, smart folks from all the various disciplines and stakeholders involved in health care in our state that uh, come together to devise some solutions. I have some thoughts uh, on how to address that myself. Um, and I'd, I'd like to uh, bring those to the table. I, I have talked to some lawmakers about that. I also think we have a broken procurement process that never gets talked about. Uh, I did discuss that for what it's worth in my hearing yesterday. And the reason I did is because at the Lottery Corporation, I insisted that we adopt some very strong, fair um, procurement policies early on. Early on. Before we hired the, the very first partner which happened to be our, our legal uh, firm, our law firm. That's the first thing you got to do. you got to have lawyers to guide you, especially when you're running a company that is based on law. And so I believe the state ought to consider adopting policies uh, into law that are very much uh, aligned with what we did at the Lottery Corporation, which is based on the the, uh, the amount of the purchased and the process that would be applied in the procurement. It, this, I think, gets abused at the local and the county levels way more so than it does at the agency level. And I've said this before, but I encourage everyone out there, go attend a city council meeting, go attend a board of supervisors meeting, and watch how they go about awarding contracts for various personal services I think you'll be a little surprised. Your eyes will be open because in the state of Mississippi, we have these very old laws that um, do not require competitive bidding for professional services. I think we got to take a hard look at these franchise laws. We've talked about that. And uh, I think we've got to implement universal school choice. I think that's uh, something we talked about with former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. Of course, we need serious tax reform, but the thing we've got to keep focusing on is how do we drive upwards our median household income and our per capita income. Those are are both uh, indicative of success, uh, a goal, and they're also a result of good policy. So it's kind of both works both ways. It's sort of a dual role there. We'll continue to talk about that. We got all the text rolling in. We got a winner yet, Rhino? I see. We do. Just confirming with them. Folks, have a great weekend. We'll be back in the studios on Monday. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.